This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Welcome back to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. This is week number seven. This week's guest is none other than Sunny Hostin, who I love and adore. She's brilliant, former prosecutor, one of the hosts of The View. She was a CNA legal analyst, a former um, prosecutor, and now she's a new author. We will get into all of those things. Um, we've had some great guests on this show, and Sunny is in the long line of great guests we've had on the Bakari Sellers Podcast, but I will break some news to you. Uh, that Thursday's guest, our next guest, is none other than the former Secretary of State and the first woman to win the nomination of a major party to be President of the United States, none other than Hillary Rodham Clinton. So stay tuned. I'm so excited about today's show, but I can honestly say that I'm coming to you with a heavy heart because the news that has rocked so many of us in my family personally were the deaths of two civil rights icons, Reverend C.T. Vivian and John Lewis. We're willing to be beaten for democracy, and you misuse democracy in the street. You beat people bloody in order that they will not have the privilege to vote. This is not a local problem, Jeff. This is a national problem. You can't keep anyone in the United States from voting without hurting the rights of all other citizens. Democracy's built on this. This is why every man has the right to vote, regardless. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. My father worked closely with both men. And my family gives our condolences to both the Lewis and Vivian families and the countless lives touched by both men. We're better because of them. They're better than the country they both gave their lives to make better. And to quote Congressman Lewis, I can't think of any better way to honor both of them than to find some good and necessary trouble to get into. And in that vein of causing good trouble, let me say to Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, people like you two made the good trouble John Lewis and C.T. Vivian talked about necessary. But more pointedly, to both Governor Kemp and Senator McConnell, and particularly 
keep John Lewis's name out of your mouth. To Brian Kemp, both Congressman Lewis and C.T. Vivian were residents of Atlanta, and elections are a joke in Georgia because of you, Governor Kemp. You can't administer a fair and seamless election, and in the case of your own election, you were the referee for your own race, and you barely won, and your office while you were Secretary of State did everything in your power to make it harder for black people in the state of Georgia to vote. Not only are your elections a joke, people are dying unnecessarily because you are incompetent. Mayors to enforce mask ordinances, with investments in testing and tracing, you sued the most prominent black mayor in your state who is doing what you won't do, and that's protecting your citizens. You know it's bad when the governor of New York has to send help to the mayor of Atlanta because you won't do your job. This might explain why you have the lowest approval ratings of any governor in the country. It's because truly you suck at your job. My sister Stacey Abrams said it best. You are a coward. Keep John Lewis and C.T. Vivian's name out of your mouth. You are the evil they spent their lives fighting. And until you can administer a fair election in Georgia and show some leadership around the coronavirus, you don't speak their names because you're not worthy of either of them. To Mitch McConnell, we saw your statement about Congressman Lewis, but you could have kept that. Senator Harris's Vote Safe Act S-3725 would make a $5 billion investment in safe and fair elections this November. A bill to restore the Voting Rights Act, H.R. 4, the Voting Rights Advancement Act of 2019, passed the House in December of 2019. If you want to honor John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, here's what you do. Add the Harris $5 billion Vote Safe Act to the Voting Rights Advancement Act. Name it the John Lewis and C.T. Vivian Voting Rights Act of 2020. Bring it to the fore and pass it and send to the House and the Congressman's former colleagues to pass that. Honor the Congressman's legacy by doing your job. And until you do, keep John Lewis's name out of your mouth. And if you won't do it on day one of the Biden administration, and the next Congress, this will be H.R. 1. To the boy from Troy and the man who Dr. King called, quote, the best preacher he ever saw, we honor and salute you. And a part of honoring you is both keeping your good work going. That looks like electing Stacey Abrams in 2022 and getting the C.T. Vivian and John Lewis Voting Rights Act in 2020 passed now. Rest in power, Congressman Lewis and Reverend Vivian. We'll keep making good trouble. On our end. Now, let's catch up with Sonny Hostin to see what she has to say about the world, what's going on, prosecution, police reform, etc. Thank you again for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. Welcome to the, uh, I have to count it out now, the seventh episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. They'll tell I'm me if I got that wrong. So thrilled for you. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. Well, this has been an awesome experience. I'm so thankful for the the Ringer and and this Spotify platform and coming off this book. And I know you have a new book coming out that we're going to jump into. <laughs> I do, I do. I am excited, but thank you for taking some time. You're so busy, but you are a hero of mine. And I know we talk often, so I just want to check in with you. How you feeling? How you doing? You know, I'm doing well. It's um, you know, we're we're in such crazy times right now, and I, I just feel really fortunate to. Um, 
be able to work from home um, and <laughs> still have a platform and to have a voice um, and being able to address issues that, as you know, have been important to me for a really long time. Correct. Um, and that are finally, I think, being uh, considered important <laughs> by more people. Um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it has been an important time, I think, in our history. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Unhappy about, of course, what's going on with the pandemic and its effect, its disproportionate effect on um, black and brown communities. But I'm just happy to have uh, a voice in what's going on. Well, we, we are happy that you have a voice because, uh, you know, you as we uh, I want to say this before we get into it, because I really mean this. But, you know, if if my daughter and daughters can look up at the screen and see someone like you and and yeah. be half the woman that you are, I think that they will be a success. So so thank you for being such an amazing um, image and Thank role model for black and brown men and women. Thank Look, you. you know, some people just see you on The View and think you popped up on TV, but they don't know that you transitioned from being a career prosecutor to television and you've done rounds at almost all of the major cable networks before you got to The View. So talk to us through your career arc uh, from law school to The View and some of the lessons learned and some of the jobs had. Yeah, uh, you're right. A lot of people... Um, think that I just sort of popped up and we all know that <laughs> the road for us is, is never that easy. Um, I didn't have the benefit of, of having, you know, an easy road or famous parents or uh, anything like that. I, I actually wanted to be a journalist. You know, Barbara Walters was actually someone that I looked up to. I would practice reporting in front of my mirror um, and I was a journalism major in college, but when I told my parents that that's something that I wanted to do, my mother really panicked and her panic was rooted in, there is no one on television that looks like you, mm -hmm. um, at, at the time, you know, and we're talking about the eighties, which was interesting. And she, she felt like I wouldn't be able to support myself and she recommended law school. Um, and it was a dream deferred for her, actually. She had taken the LSAT, unbeknownst to me at the time. And um, I decided that she was right, that there weren't a lot of people of color on television, that I wouldn't be the next Barbara Walters. This was sort of pre-Oprah blowing up. Yeah. And um, I went to law school and loved it because there is nothing like knowing your rights. I was always a fighter in that sense. You know, my grandmother, my mother's mother didn't speak English. And I remember going, you know, to stores with her and she was shortchanged and I would fight the fight, you know, and I spoke English, <laughs> and argue with people. And so it was, it was a very good fit for me. Um, and I did well. And, but, but I always knew that I wanted to work in criminal law yeah. I, because it, it felt tangible to me. It just, it felt, you know, I, I'd seen so much violence growing up. I, I grew up in the projects. I grew up poor and I wanted to be part of making things better. If that makes sense. Yeah, of course. You wanted to be a change agent. I feel that. Yeah, I, I did. And I, I didn't know anything about being a corporate lawyer and I took secure transactions in law school and I took contract law. Secure transactions took me. 
I, 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 I got a nice C out of secure transaction. And I think that's because I was at the bottom of the curve. He was just like, Bakari, we're going to let you get on through. But you yes, know what I, was weird was I, I've always been very good at that kind of work. Like I started my career as an antitrust lawyer at the Justice. Oh, wow. I didn't even know yeah. that. Yeah. I was very good at secure transactions and contracts and um, any anything that had to do with that kind of, of law. And, and my, my, uh, my professors kept on saying, you know, you'd make a great corporate lawyer. And, and I thought I wouldn't make a great corporate lawyer because I'm not, <laughs> what kind of change agent does, <laughs> would I make? You know, I it just, it didn't, it what didn't feel real to me. And the first time that it felt real to me was when I became a federal prosecutor, quite frankly. And um, it's interesting to me because a lot of folks do ask me, why become a prosecutor? Why wouldn't you become a defense attorney? Answer and, that, please. Yeah. I have and, a theory, but I want to hear yours. Yeah. You know, for me, I know that the most powerful person in a courtroom is not the judge, is certainly not the defense attorney. The mm-hmm. most powerful person in every single criminal courtroom is the prosecutor. Correct. Because we make the decision whether or not to bring a case. We make the decision whether or not to dismiss a case. We make um, the cases in front of the grand juries. We Mm -hmm. make the decision, the sentencing recommendations. We run the show. Yep. And I wanted to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. I made many decisions that I think helped black and brown communities. I was one of those prosecutors that went into our communities and said, I can protect you. I can make sure that your community is not terrorized by this person if you'll testify. And I can put you in the WITSEC program. And I also was the prosecutor that saw the kid that, you know, had an unstable home, but had a lot of potential and made a mistake. And that's not the kid that I'm going to or if a, or if a case is weak, you go in front of the grand jury and you don't put up a case. You the grand jury comes back with the no bill. I probably dismissed more cases than I made. Yeah. You know, I was the person. I was actually on the View. Meek Mill told me that I was the first person that asked him when I saw his mugshot, "What happened to your face?" Because he had a black eye in the mugshot. I mean, if if a if a cop came to me with a picture of a defendant, you know, in a mugshot with a a black eye and a confession, I'm not going to bring that case because how did you get a confession? So I, I knew early on that that was the side to be on because that was the powerful side. And that's uh, the side that we're not on. It's a, it's a very, there. We're, we're never there. there because we're called cops. You know, Kamala is a cop. We're called, uh, you know, sell or out. Val, Val Demings recently Val too. Demings you know, that kind of thing. And what people need to understand is if we are not on that side of the table, we are lost. We are really, really lost. Let me ask you a question about some things going on right now. As a former prosecutor, what's your take on police reform conversations happening across the country? And what are your must-haves? When people listen to this show, I want them to be able to get something concrete out of it. But if you were to reform police right now, what are some of the things that you would say are Sonny's must-haves as you landscape the, the entire conversation we're having? I certainly believe that we need to have public safety. We need to have policing, but we need to rethink it. You know, police officers are supposed to be, again, officers of the peace. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But we also need to recognize that the, the root of policing in the United States comes from slave patrols, right? Yeah. And so given the history of policing and the over-policing of black and brown communities, you have to go further than implicit bias training and de-escalation <laughs> training and that sort of thing. At this point, must-haves for me are the demilitarization of police officers. Amen. Um, police districts all over our country. There is no reason that police stations all over our country should have armored vehicles and that sort of thing. I think that every single police officer must have body cameras that can't be turned on and off at their discretion. Certainly, I think there needs to be psychological testing for each and every police officer. I do think that there is something to defunding the police. And that is not to say abolishing the police, because, again, I started by saying that we need of course, of course. we need to have. Um, I mean, you, you mean you mean going line by line and examining the resources that we put in. Yeah, we, we, we do need to do that, because in my research, I know that there are school districts that have police officers, but those same school districts don't have nurses. They don't have mental health professionals. Right. And I, I speak to cops all the time. They're some of my closest friends, some of my family members. A majority of their calls are for mental health issues. They don't want to deal with those calls, right? They want to deal with violent crime. And they also don't want to deal with broken window policing. They don't want to deal with that kind of stuff. So let's take some of those funds and take them out of schools and put mental health professionals in those schools. Let's take some of those funds and I put agree. it into training. Let's take some of those funds and put it into community-based programs. Let's put it into um, community policing efforts. So I, I, th there are a lot of must-haves, but I think it goes beyond training programs, like retraining <laughs> the police. We've tried that. And it has failed miserably, and we keep on throwing money at the problem and throwing money at police departments, and it doesn't work. So, and in it, some cities like LA, it's 50, 55% of the budget. So, I, I, I mean, and those, those funds could be going, as you said, to summer jobs programs or after school programs or homelessness, housing, you know, the list goes. The food deserts, you know, how food, about exactly. that? Um, how about our schools? Because that's yeah. a huge problem. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, there are great cops out there and there are not so great cops out there. And there so let me ask you this, though. Let me ask you this, because you you've been a prosecutor on that note. Talk mm -hmm. to me about the realities of how difficult it is even now to prosecute and convict the cop, even um, in what appears to be clear cases of misconduct. It's I don't want to say almost impossible, but it's almost impossible. And, and, <laughs> it, and that is because. People want to believe police officers Correct. still to this day. They do. And, you know, you are, you, you have a jury of your peers. There, there are 12 of them generally in a criminal case. And there is that phenomenon of the, 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 the blue wall. And typically it's just, it's extremely hard to get 12 citizens to convict a cop. Um, it's becoming increasingly easier, um, is my understanding. When I speak to some of um, my my former my, my prosecutor friends, but it is still very very difficult to get the cooperation of the department. And most importantly, it's because of 
how obstreperous the police unions are. The police unions are extremely powerful and there's so much immunity given um, to police officers that when they get off criminally, you can't even get any. And, and I, you know, my disappointment today, I don't know if you saw the article today, but it said Joe Biden wasn't quite ready to go there on qualified immunity yet. And oh, I'm like, really? did he say? Yeah. And so, you know, the question is when you talk about qualified immunity and when you also talk about the extremely high standard, in the words of Eric Holder, he said, you know, to prosecute cops federally, the standard is too damn high. Uh, to quote him exactly. He was my um, boss. I would agree with him. <laughs> it's extremely difficult, almost impossible. So, I mean, I guess right now, in order to control this, one, you know, I think Democrats have to flip the House and the Senate. But even more importantly, wouldn't you say that some of the focus should be on on electing these progressive prosecutors much in the line of a Sonny Hostin or, or a Fox or all of these amazing Marilyn Mosby, many of which are black women who are around the country attempting to do the good work? Kim Worthy. Yeah. My um, uh, yes, I, I think you cannot underestimate the import of local elections. I'm always very dismayed when I hear that people don't vote in their local elections. It's extremely important. But I, I do think it is extremely important that we look in our own backyards in terms of, of law enforcement. And it does start with your local DA's office. It's extremely important. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. At Ikea, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before. Because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. How did you process the criticisms that were leveled against our good friend or levied against our good friend Kamala Harris for her record as a prosecutor, being labeled a cop and all of these other things? How did you reconcile those things, knowing your background and knowing hers as well? Well, and oh, look at the cutie pie. <laughs> yeah, we always have somebody join us during these shows. So this is this is Sadie joining us. Say hey, Auntie Sunny. Hi, pretty okay. hi. She can be a oh. she could be a little prosecutor when she grows up. Yes. Say do you done, my. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I, I do know Kamala and and we've spoken about this because right. I got the same uh, pushback um, throughout my career and afterwards, and I still get it today. 
I get the, you know, the, the tweet, the Twitter hates from the, you know, the, the Twitter folks that live in their mama's basements. And I, I think that um, the way that I reconcile it is that it, it's through education. Most people don't understand what I just said to you earlier, that prosecutor is the most important person in the courtroom and you need us there. You, you need people of color. You need um, women. I will say this, of course, you know, I'm not here to defend her record. I'm sure there are, are mistakes that she made. I'm sure of there course. are decisions that she would reconsider. I'm sure there are issues that, in hindsight, she would have handled differently. But what I think is that she should have been um, given the same consideration that other people were given. Because Amy Klobuchar had a exactly. far worse record than Kamala Harris did. Uh, Pete Buttigieg had a far worse record than Kamala Harris did. Joe Biden has a very problematic record in terms of law enforcement. Correct. And it seemed to me that the, the person under the microscope very early on was Kamala Harris. And, and um, that has a lot to do with of course. racism and the fact that she's a black woman. And less to do with the fact, I think, that she, then she was a prosecutor. Because, again, Amy Klobuchar was sitting right, standing right next to her on the debate <laughs> and stage. Nobody, nobody looked at Amy Klobuchar's record until Minnesota. It was a, it was a phenomenon. Like, uh, oh, and now people are like, oh, my gosh, she was a prosecutor in Min- well, after George Floyd happened. It, exactly. And I actually questioned her on our show about Mayan Burrell. And I believe I was the first person to question her. You, you probably were. And thank <laughs> you for that. Let me ask you this. Is it in this environment... Is it possible for someone to seek higher office successfully without being tarred and feathered as, as a cop? If you're a, if you have a prosecutor in your background, um, I think so. I, I think again, it's it's about putting it out there immediately and saying that you're proud of your service. I remember we had um, John McCain on our show, and um, I explained to him that at one point I wanted to go to West Point, and mm. um, father was really against it. You know, he was afraid of his only child being in the service. And, you know, Senator McCain said to me, we all serve in different ways. You were uh, an an assistant United States attorney for many years. You served our country. You did. And he wrote that in, 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 uh, he, he signed something. He wrote that. And so I think that you stand on the service that you, and, and Kamala needs to stand on her service to this country much in the way that uh, Val Demings has served our country, mm-hmm. uh, much in the way that Tammy Duckworth has served our country. Prosecutors do serve our country. My last question along these lines directly, but you see uh, Attorney General Cameron in Kentucky mm-hmm. um, and his uh, deliberate nature in the Breonna Taylor case. That's what I'll call it. Why is this case not getting the same concern? I, I know the answer, I feel, but <laughs> I wanted to ask you, why is this case, why is her name not ringing as loudly as George Floyd or Maud Aubrey? What What else? I mean, it, it's a no-knock warrant. They were grossly negligent at best, uh, which in most cases brings you to a manslaughter standard. I'm a criminal defense attorney. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I've had people charged with manslaughter for less Yes. Uh, than storming in the in the wrong people's houses. Sure. What, what do you make of what do you make of Attorney General Cameron outside of his beautiful engagement pictures recently, <laughs> kind of sit, sitting on this case and not doing much of anything? You know, I, I spoke to Ben Crump about this, our mutual friend, for a while, and he he really thinks that unfortunately 
the death of black women gets short shrift in our country, even shorter shrift than the death of, of black men, which yeah. in my view was, it was pretty shocking to me. I think uh, Brittany Cunningham did an incredible job. She's an activist. I'm sure you're familiar with her, but did an incredible job of lifting up that story. Yes. And when you think about Breonna Taylor, we're talking about not only a black woman, but a black woman on the front lines, right? right. Of, of serving our country, serving our country um, as a frontline worker to be killed in her home, in her bed. And for those officers to just sort of be walking around without being charged is remarkable to me. And it shows you what the value of her life means Truly. to this country. And it's crazy because it seems like we have this, this, even this, this hierarchy that we don't even talk about that it's, it's, it's black men, it's black women, and then our black trans uh, yes. sisters as well. Yes. I mean, it's like, we don't even, it, it, it goes to a point that we, as black men, we have to do better about acknowledging all these lives and, and lifting them all up and saying all of their names, right? Yes, absolutely. And it's, um, I do think at least now the issue is present. Yes. In a way that I haven't seen before. And I don't think it's a moment. I think it's a movement, truly. I pray that this is a movement. That is my, that is one of our, the twins and I prayer that this is, we, we're praying for a movement, not a moment. I want to change gears just, just quickly. Can you explain, because I, well, since I have an expert here, I might as well ask <laughs> to help educate these listeners. Can you explain to our listeners what is going on in the Southern District of New York oh. and President Trump and why his firing of the U.S. <laughs> attorney is so problematic? Yes. Uh, you know, I think that when this president knows that he is cornered and perhaps about to be exposed to any sort of criminal liability, he uses the power of the presidency to fire people. Yeah. That's it stated, I think, in the most clear way possible. And he uses the office of the attorney general, the Department of Justice, to do it. That's unfortunate, but that is what he does. And so what you saw was the Southern District of New York, I, I tend to think it's the D.C. office of the U.S. Attorney's Office where I was, but the Southern <laughs> District of New York is considered the first or the second most important office. That yeah, it, it really is the D.C. office, but the Southern District of New York is is pretty powerful. I'm, I'm going to have Preet <laughs> on in the future, so I, I will run that clip back and let Preet, <laughs> let Preet respond. <laughs> yes, let Preet respond. But it comes, it comes close. Um, you know, it handles some of the most important issues of public integrity. And, you know, when you look at, let's say, the Jeffrey Epstein case, that right. is not being handled by the sex crimes unit. It's being handled by the public integrity unit. Now, I was a sex crimes um, prosecutor. I didn't I, know that. Tell me why. And I'm yeah. watching this Netflix special right now. The oh. uh, I forget the name of it, but it's insane. Yeah, I prosecuted child sex crimes and child trafficking and things like that. Because I thought that that was the most important work, right? Those are the, the most vulnerable in our society, the elderly and children. And so I wanted to do that work. And uh, it just seemed to me... And, and, and we handled those cases, the sex crimes unit, 
public integrity generally does not handle sex crimes cases unless a public official is involved. And so for the Jeffrey Epstein case out of the Southern District of New York to be handled by the public integrity unit tells me that public officials are involved. Um, Is that why they want to meet with Prince Andrew or they're they're attempting to be polite in the questioning thereof? Interesting, because he's not even a United States public official. Right. So which United States public official is involved in that case? And that's just one case. They may be investigating another portion of uh, another case, but they are the umbrella unit handling some cases. And so the fact that that particular U.S. attorney was targeted and terminated tells me that public officials. Well, do you do you think that do you think that Trump with uh, the, you know, even uh, Gorsuch saying no one is above the law in his recent uh, Mm -hmm. in his recent, uh, I believe it was seven to one. Supreme Court justice opinion on his taxes. Do mm-hmm. you think that he has any criminal liability when he leaves the White House? I don't know if it's in five months or in do. five I years. Do. Yeah, I oh, let's hope it's not five years. But yeah, I, I do. And, and Tim I, J- Tish James has to, <laughs> I, she's one of the most courageous people I know, but the ball will be in her yes. court sooner rather than later. Yes. And, and I think what's going to be important is that you're seeing parallel cases being investigated, not only on the federal level, but on the state level. Now, President Trump can, can you know, pardon many people on the federal level, but that pardon power doesn't extend to the state level. And that's why any New York state investigation or prosecution is going to be key here. And so we know the Supreme Court found that the New York state level investigators and prosecutors can access his taxes. Yeah. And I think that is going to probably be the key to any criminal liability that uh, the president encounters after term, and it's going to be a it's going to be a a, a mess. I, I I tell people often that uh, I know you're a DOJ alum, but I tell people often that you are on my short list for the president to choose as his attorney general, whether or not you want it or not. <laughs> I, I, my my list includes uh, Doug Jones number one. I pray mm-hmm. Doug Jones doesn't lose, but it's Alabama, <laughs> so I like to be honest. Doug Jones, uh, Deval Patrick. Deval mm-hmm. probably doesn't want to do it, and Sonny Hostin. Uh, <laughs> so, who is on your short list for the for the VP? Should he be president of the United States as an Attorney General? Have you given it any thought? And what do you think the priority should be, other than rooting out white supremacy everywhere that the president has allowed to seep into every portion of federal oh, government? It's really terrible. Well, you know, I wrote a little op-ed in the Washington Post with a group of friends. Yeah, I heard about that, <laughs> which went pretty viral. And- yeah. Um, and and we, we wrote this uh, before the death of George Floyd. And, and we thought, and I still feel this way, that it's imperative upon Joe Biden to choose a black woman as his vice presidential candidate. And it's also important that he outline a true black agenda. Oh, my goodness. Um, I, you know, I, I've, I've spoken to our mutual friend Charlemagne recently about that yeah. on this show. Yes. And people are people have a hard time grasping the notion that we can push Joe Biden to be better on black issues and also work like hell for him to get elected. Just because yes. I'm asked, just because I am pushing him doesn't mean that I I won't vote for him or I'm encouraging people not yeah. to vote. But why can't I why can't I make him earn my vote as well? That's interesting to me, that concept, because that's the same pushback that I got 
Um, I, mean, I got probably thousands of emails, which was on my website, which was fascinating because, you know, I get a lot of emails, but I never got that kind of reaction. And, and my answer to that is this. There are lobbying groups all the time and voter blocks that make demands, not right. just requests, but demands for their votes. The evangelicals often meet. Evangelicals, pro, uh, pro-life, gun pro-life, rights, gun NRA, they meet with the presidential candidate and they say, if you want our vote, our collective vote, you must give us a Supreme Court justice or you must have as part of your platform, Second Amendment rights be up front, uh, pro-life be up front, uh, Christ be up front, whatever. Yet black women and black people are the backbone of the Democratic Party, have always been took Joe Biden over the finish line. Correct. He would not be the candidate, but for South Carolina, but for black women, but for Jim Clyburn, right? Correct. So why is it that as a collective, all of a sudden we are the only voting bloc that cannot say, if you want our collective vote, Correct. you must give us a black VP and you must also give us a true Black agenda. I mean, we're the only voting bloc that is told to shut up and dribble. And I don't understand that. Just shut up and vote. And And not not only that, but we've been somewhat conditioned because a lot of the criticism comes from other black folk. And I understand that we're voting for our lives. I get that. But while we have four and a half months, because when when Joe Biden gets elected, it's going to be very difficult to hold him accountable for us. I mean, he'll have Jim Clyburn to listen to or Cedric Richmond to listen to. But right now, this is the only time we have to put pressure on him. This is the only time that we have leverage, quite frankly. And and the other pushback that I've gotten is, well, but he promised a, 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 you know, a black Supreme Court justice. That's an empty promise because without the Senate, without flipping the Senate, you know, Mitch McConnell, Moscow Mitch, is just going to basically be obstreperous and do the exact same thing that he did with the, with the, the Garland vote. So this notion that, well, he already gave us something yep. is much ado about nothing. Now is the time to exert the pressure. And the other thing is we have to energize the Democratic base in a way that the base has never been energized. We lost Michigan by... Thousands of votes. Like 15,000. 15,000 votes. But if you think about it, 400,000 black folks stayed at home. Correct. Now, do you really think that a Tim Kaine-esque type candidate, VP, is going to energize black people, not only to get out and vote, but to risk their lives and stand on a COVID-palooza line to vote for who? To vote for Amy Klobuchar? To vote for maybe Tammy Duckworth? No. Now, if I'm going to make a historic vote, if I'm going to vote for a black woman who might eventually be president, I may risk my life to do that. So I'm talking about energizing the base. And what better way to energize the base than to repay me, Joe Biden, for my vote? That's all I'm saying. Well, listen, I, I love it. I, before I let you go, I got I to gotta talk about this future bestseller. You're releasing oh. it four days after my birthday. Oh. Uh, I'm going to put it right here. So when all my CNN hits, Thank it's going to be you. right over my shoulder. It's I Am These Truths, a memoir of identity, justice, 
and Living Between Worlds. Have you done a cover reveal yet? Has that come out yet? Yes, yes. I have okay. done a cover reveal. I think I do I have it here. Don't I worry have- about it. I'm going to get it. We're, we're going to put it up. But it comes out September 22nd. We are label mates. Uh, HarperCollins has some of the yes. best talent. They have Sonny Hostin, 50 Cent, and Bukhari Sellers, and yes, Tiffany Cross. Fantastic. Oh, well, thank you so much. Tell me, tell me about your book real quick, why you wrote it this time and, and what you want people to get out of it. Well, it's, it's become uh, now, it's, it's very timely, but I wrote it because so many people would ask me about my journey and would also ask me the question of, you know, what are you? Who are you? <laughs> and, and I've always identified as being a Black Pina, you know, I'm Black yeah. and Puerto Rican. And I've always sort of been put into this box. And I feel that it's time for people to embrace everything that they are um, and for black and brown communities to understand that we are in this struggle together. And I wanted to explore a lot of those issues, issues facing our communities, issues facing social justice. Um, I, I talk about my career and the issues that I've, I've had to face as a woman of color. I talk about some of the uh, the recent issues that I faced on the View, and it. Oh, you get into that. I, you know, that's, we had a whole interview. I didn't ask you one question about the View. I'm I'm trying to keep everybody employed, but that's okay. <laughs> I get into that because I, I wanted to be just brutally honest. You know, Bakari, that's my style. Of course. And um, I I think um, honesty is always the best policy, and um, I, I I thank ABC because they reviewed it and and they let me be truthful. That's why it's called I Am These Truths. Um, yeah. We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? Um, and that's where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm hoping that it's not, um, I think the big takeaway for me is that if a girl from the South Bronx Projects could be talking to you today, that um, anyone can do anything. And, and well, that's I mean, the big takeaway. I'm excited for you. I wish nothing but the best. I want to thank you for joining me on the Bakari Sellers podcast. My family loves you. We miss not bumping into you on the vineyard or wherever. Give your amazing husband uh, my best. <laughs> Tell him I said hello. And I wish you nothing but health, happiness, and success. Thank you. And your team is so dope. Alex and everybody on your team. Uh-oh. Thank you for their diligence and, and getting this done. The family. I will. I will work hard. I'll see you soon. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Stay safe. Be well.